Hi, everyone, and welcome to Stay Invested Podcast, where I bring on world-changing leaders to talk about technology, finance, politics, and of course, the impact that they create in the world. I'm your host, Jason Barsima, the co-founder and president of Halo, and I'm pleased and honored to have a friend and a partner, Walter White, on the show today. Walter is the CEO and president of Allianz Life North America, and Walter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jason. I really appreciate it. I don't think I have the uh, intellect of some of your prior uh, guests. I'm going to try to be on my A game today. Thank you for the <laughs> opportunity. I, I beg to differ. As as we were just talking about offline, you know, you you've got the fancy background there, so I don't think uh, this is your first rodeo. And I've seen you plenty of times on the stage. And so, um, you know, in all sincerity, we're we're very blessed and honored to to have you on today. And I know our guests are really looking forward to hearing your perspective. And so with that, you know, I'd love to just start off as, um, you know, being the president and CEO of uh, the North American unit of one of the world's largest life insurance companies. You certainly wear a lot of hats and you've certainly seen a lot of things. It's kind of taking a step back from there. You know, what kind of got you to where you are today, Walter? And maybe you can walk our audience through a little bit of your life journey, if you'd be so kind. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe a quick tour of how I got to financial services. Um, I went to business school, uh, and back in that day, um, I was at Wharton, um, where uh, every day there were companies coming from New York and kind of presenting what they did. And I would say most of my fellow students were looking to make a career track change, and I was kind of in that same mode. Um, From that, I ultimately chose to join Pepsi uh, in a marketing role. This was back in the day that Pepsi was very active in music. It was a super exciting sure. period. We were sponsoring concerts. We had massive uh, brand and advertising budgets. Uh, and it was a great job. Um, it had a lot of complexity. We were trying to solve problems about consumer preferences. But if I were being honest, what the main goal of Pepsi was at that time was to stomp on Coca-Cola. And every day we thought about that and we measured ourselves against that. And it didn't take too long that just not to feel, um, you know, all that meaningful. Uh, The joke I always made, because Pepsi uh, owns Frito-Lay, so it was soda and snack food that that job was filling, but not necessarily fulfilling. Uh, And I started to think more about that after a couple of years, and that ultimately led me to financial services. And I always tell our employees, we're really fortunate to be in an industry uh, where if we are successful, people will benefit their lives will be fundamentally changed in a positive way. And that isn't true of all jobs, even perfectly acceptable industries and jobs. uh, That's a unique opportunity we have. So uh, I think that's important. So I went to work for um, what is at the time an old line mutual life insurer, Mutual New York uh, in New York City that was trying to diversify. So I was mostly working on diversification effort. Uh, From there, I moved to the Midwest with Fortis, which was a Dutch-Belgian conglomerate. Uh, Fortis had a company that was sort of mainstream, variable universal life, mutual funds, variable annuities, uh, which was ultimately acquired by the Hartford. Uh, Fortis had a collection of odd stuff. This was the one mainstream (laughs) company, uh, and it played right into what Hartford was trying to grow at that point. Uh, That was an interesting experience being on the other side of an acquisition, and I did decide uh, to stay on with uh, the new entity. From there, we built out a a retail broker-dealer. It was one of the things that attracted Hartford was this idea of uh, getting more directly involved in the uh, the retail distribution space. 
Uh, and then from there, I joined uh, Allianz. I'll say what attracted me to Allianz um, really was that global footprint. And while Hartford was active globally, it was very much a U.S. company that had opened a few offices internationally, but it was run from the U.S. Whereas with Allianz being in you know 70 plus countries, um, it really is an international company and it's a fundamentally different feel. It makes everything a lot more complicated, um, but also it opens up possibilities we wouldn't otherwise have. So that's sort of a quick tour of how I, I came to Allianz. The only other thing I'll mention is what marked my journey during that period was crossing functions a fair amount. Um, so I was in finance, distribution, operations, IT. Um, probably the only area I wasn't in was legal. Um, and while that sort of made me less of an expert in any one of those, it definitely helps me now where I kind of have a broader line of sight on uh, all the functions of the company. Well, and I think that that point is so critical. And I have, you know, a lot of follow-up questions, you know, through your journey, because it's really interesting of, you know, marketing and Pepsi, right? And, and music and Pepsi, and then getting into, you know, insurance. Um, you know, those are two very different uh, industries and probably two very different cultures um, that you've dealt with. So, you know, maybe my first question, you know, with that is, you know, while you're trying to uphold, you know, obviously a very long and, and storied legacy of Allianz, you know, in a German insurance company, how do you kind of manage the culture of keeping the great culture that Allianz has from a global perspective? But, you know, Halo is a global company, as you know, and the way that we do business in different parts of the world is, is very different from a cultural and, uh, and just behavioral standpoint. How do you kind of keep the, the, the global brand of Allianz while tailoring it more towards a you know, United States feel and approach, both from a customer and from, you know, from your employee perspective? Yeah, that's a great question. And one, I wouldn't say we've mastered. It's something we think about all the time. Um, it is critical to um, understand that we have a global footprint and we should be taking advantage of that. And I tell our team here, uh, if we're not getting value from that, um, and all we're getting is the you know, global size and scale and the financial strength, uh, it's not going to be worth it because there's a price to be paid for that. I mean, life is more complicated. We're constantly filing reports and responding to various rules and mandates. Uh, so that's a pretty hefty tax, uh, and it's got to be offset by incremental value. So we have to find ways to use that um, global presence, the, the understanding you get when you're operating in those markets uh, to drive results locally. But I do believe that that local um, identity is really critical. I and mean, that's the reason customers you know, will come to us. They recognize it's a global company, but they're really looking at local operations. It's certainly the reason that our employees choose to come uh, and stay with us. So I think we have to lead with that, but then make sure we're not um, you know, minimizing the opportunity to get value from that global brand one area I'll point to, which um, maybe is uh, a little different than you might expect, is diversity and inclusion. You know, when that became such a focus uh, in the U.S. after the events of last summer, particularly here in the Twin Cities, you know, we had to remember, hey, we're part of a global company that is inherently very, very diverse. When you go over uh, to Munich for a meeting, you'll see multiple nationalities, languages. So, the same skills it takes to succeed in that world, the cultural competence you need to develop is exactly what we need locally and we can benefit uh, from that experience. So I think it's a 
example of maybe getting some incremental value in a way we didn't anticipate uh, while still retaining that local focus. I love the the word cultural competence. You know, I, I, I haven't heard a phrase like that before. And I, I think it's a very, you know, important point. And, and that was something that I was going to bring up in regards to, you know, obviously the events that happened last summer, um, you know, I would imagine with, you know, you know, alliances uh, on, on the, uh, you know, on the Allianz life side is headquartered out of Minneapolis. So, you know, certainly you are right in the thick of things in, in regards to, um, you know, the terrible events that happened, uh, you know, all, all around, you know, from a cultural perspective, you know, how did you deal with that with your employees? I mean, I had to be, you know, there's a lot of emotions, rightfully so, um, you know, what was going on in the country at, at that time, and especially right literally in your backyard, you know, how did you deal with that from a leadership perspective? I can't imagine the, the, you know, perhaps stress isn't the right word, but, you know, that, that had to be a big part of your focus, wasn't it? Yeah, it absolutely was. And it came from, you know, years prior recognizing we weren't uh, as far along as we wanted to be, whether you measure that just in terms of the composition of the workforce or name recognition in various communities. Uh, and in fact, we were getting further and further out of step with the composition of the local community. A lot of times people think of Minnesota and the Twin Cities as not being very diverse, but a lot's changed. And when you particularly yeah, when you look at St. Paul and Minneapolis, it's become very diverse. So we knew we had ground to make up. And then we had the events after the killing of George Floyd, which just sent everything into hyperdrive and brought a lot of long simmering um, bitterness and anguish uh, to the fore. Um, you know, interestingly, I'd say my first reaction was, as is typical, oh, we got to do something. We're going to move, you know, into action. That's what leaders um, do. That's right. The good news is we have a chief diversity and inclusion officer who joined us relatively recently. Uh, and her advice was take a step back and just listen, hear what people have to say from various perspectives that was incredibly eye-opening. Um, we really realized after hearing some of this that people's outlooks are so framed by their personal experiences. And if you didn't have those same experiences, you're not gonna see things the same way. So getting our employees together to listen to each other was really critical. It allowed us to um, think about what we could do together and not simply you know, one group or another group and how is this gonna play out. I would say my biggest takeaway from those sessions was we have to get everybody to come along. Um, yes, there are certain objectives we have to improve um, diversity relative to the composition of employees, but we've got to get all employees um, to participate in that process. So that will inform our thinking going forward. Second thing I took away is it's such a monumental issue, uh, and there's so many aspects of it. You, know, you could start with housing or education. Even all the nonprofits that are focused on related problems, you know, they have a diversity issue. So you could pick many aspects, um, but I always want us to remember the most meaningful thing we can do is inside the walls of our building. That you talk about uh, economic inequality. Well, if we can create high-paying, you know, engaging jobs for more people uh, from those communities, that's meaningful. So. While we're going to do some things outside the building, I want to make sure we stay focused on what we can do inside as a company. I think that that's, uh, that's really good advice, you know, and around the country and for that matter, around the world, 
the events of George George Floyd were, you know, really focused on these events and focused on inclusion and what can we do? And you know, to your point of, you know, the first action of any leader is, you know, let's do something. I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but let's do something. And, um, and I think it's you know, the old adage of, you know, two ears and one mouth, right? Which is, you know, listen twice as much as you speak. And that was an important part, an important point, you know, during those events of, and as we told our company, you know, around the world, we have offices in Chicago, but we also have offices in Singapore and, and Zurich, and we're opening one up in Abu Dhabi. So we are also very diverse just by a function of our locations. Um, but, you know, as, as I reminded my colleagues of control what you can control and what I can control right now is what happens inside this house um, and focused on inclusion, diversity, listening and understanding, because to your point, you know, unless you've been in those shoes and walked in those shoes, then you can't understand. And so you really need to listen and you really need to learn and understand the perspectives of everybody, no matter what creed, race, gender, preference. And so I, I think that all taught us a lot about the importance, you know, of that. And at the end of the day, I think it made us stronger. And so, you know, you have to look at every negative and turn it into a positive and thinking about, okay, how did we rally around that? And I know as I talk with your colleagues all the time, you know, the way that you in particular and Allianz handled it, especially being on your doorstep, I, I heard it was phenomenal. And obviously I've witnessed it, you know, firsthand you know, getting kind of back to that and switching topics, you know, a little bit is I think that is the you touch upon an earlier point, you know, about Allianz being that global company and and you know, we have a lot of business in Europe. And so when I go to Europe, you know, the Allianz brand name is like everywhere. Um, and it's a relatively, you know, it's it's not maybe as prevalent as it is in the United States as it would be in a Germany, obviously, or, or within a Europe, uh, naturally so, as that's their home turf. But what I really think is interesting about Allianz is just the global umbrella that you guys have from life insurance product to PIMCO and, and the thought leaders that, that Allianz has. You know, how do you kind of put all that together from the, you know, from, uh, the, life, you know, the Allianz life perspective of being able to tap into all these great thought leaders like a Mohammed Al-Aryan, which you know, I'm not trying to be biased or play favorites, but I think he's one of the world's <laughs> greatest economists of all time. Um, and, uh, and invented the words new normal, uh, that we all use. So, you know, so many times, um, you know, how do you kind of put all this together with the, you know, kind of the alliance and the PIMCO, how do those cultures, you know, collide and ultimately promote the overall brand and offerings that alliance provides? Yeah. PIMCO is an interesting uh, case because we do have a close relationship with PIMCO, um, pure business terms, you know, they manage the bulk of our general account. So we're benefiting clearly from that aspect of the Allianz family, they're, they're bringing value to us. We, we couldn't access without that uh, connection. Uh, we also share ultimately the same leader and Jackie Hunt. Uh, so we're part of the same group of companies that, that Jackie oversees, which is really helpful. It, it creates connections. But I would say the biggest thing I've learned, there's lots of um, both immediate business interests you can work on together and various forums where Allianz is bringing people together. But much of it is created informally. I mean, just the relationships that you cultivate over the years. And then as things arise, you know where to go. You can find best practices. Uh, there's some sharing of talent, which is also uh, really helpful. Um, and in fact, that's one of the things I wonder about in our new virtual world, if that gets compromised in any way, because certainly with those informal connections are improved by having some face-to-face -face, uh, interaction. And you, know, you have the meeting in Munich, but it's the dinner after 
um, right. the beers that you drink. That's what ultimately yeah. creates the, the relationships. So I think right now we're, we're trading off of relationships we built that way in the past. Going forward, it may be more of a challenge. So I do want to make sure we, we stay attuned to that because it does require us to be proactive. It doesn't magically happen that these things get shared. And I am always surprised when I'll see a presentation um, and realize, you know, some other entity I never would have envisioned was really far down the road on something we had just begun to, to think about. So we can definitely benefit from that knowledge sharing. And, uh, and that was going to actually be a, a, it's a perfect point to a follow-up question that I had in regards to, you know, just the world and how fast it's moving, um, you know, from both the, you know, technology perspective and, you know, and an innovation perspective, you know, there, there's always this stigma of, uh, you know, big insurance companies, right. And, and them being a cruise ship and it's like moving the aircraft carrier yet technology is, is happening so quickly. I mean, you've been involved with Halo now for, you know, as, as an entity and, and even individually for the last few years. And, you know, we, we went from probably, you know, five guys and a dog uh, to now a hundred people around the world. And, and, you know, just, uh, and, and kind of firing on all cylinders three years for us seems like it's been 30 years, literally, uh, you know, I like to joke. I had a full head of hair when I started Halo and three years <laughs> later, now you can see what my haircut is. Um, but you know, with that, how does Allianz navigate that? I mean, you are one of the world's largest financial institutions all in, when you look at all of Allianz's holding companies, you're one of the world's largest financial institutions. How do you manage the, um, you know, really the balance of taking your time to make sure that any decision or strategy is well thought out, but at the same point in time of making sure you're staying at the forefront of technology and innovation, um, kind of a tough question perhaps to answer, but I'd love your perspective. Yeah, that's definitely a challenge and kind of goes back to what I said about the importance of, you know, not losing sight of local presence, local needs, because there is a level at which you just can't get that line of sight um, unless you do, you know, weigh, weigh heavily on the, the local side of things. When it comes to technology, maybe there's two sides to the, the coin. You know, I do see value in the global scale, global thinking. I mean, certainly when it comes to infrastructure, you know, we benefited from having this global view about how we should each set up. You're not going to get huge value from infrastructure from a customer standpoint. Uh, so yep. figuring out the best way to do it and collaborating, that made a lot of sense. Other areas, though, are going to be very specific um, to the, the, the situation in each country, and we need to be responsive to that. One of the reasons we got interested in making ventures investments, part of it was get some real intelligence on cutting edge thinking. A lot of it was cultural, um, just having exposure to people who, you know, just fundamentally think about decisions differently. They don't have a risk department or a compliance department. Um, you know, they're thinking primarily about growth. That helps us. Um, we have to be realistic that as an institution, we're going to have to operate within a certain uh, set of parameters. But there's plenty of op optionality within those parameters if we have the right mindset. Um, so personally, I like talking to people like you because uh, you're coming at it from a different angle. At some point, to your point, though, you're going to deal with some of the similar issues. Okay, now I'm big enough. Uh, yep. <laughs> Full-fledged, you know, HR department and how do I manage the complexities? Uh, and interestingly, that's where we have expertise. So I think it's a little bit of a two-way street. We can help each other in, in a sense 
Uh, but no question, we've got to find ways to keep our mindset fresh. Otherwise, I think we run the risk of, uh, you know, settling into what's worked in the past and miss a new opportunity. Well, and I, I think you're exactly right. I, I like to, you know, joke to a lot of your colleagues, if you're the aircraft carrier, we're like the little motorboat in front of the aircraft carrier to help at least point the aircraft carrier in the right direction, right? And it is definitely a two-way street because that motorboat still relies on the power and the strength of the aircraft carrier. And um, and for and for us, I mean, it's it's funny you said that, and and I candidly wasn't planning on really talking about it, but we are dealing with that as a company, right? Of the, there's more structure coming in, and it's the blessing and the curse of growth. Of okay, there is more of a yeah. You know, we always used to be a totally flat organization, right? But once you start growing and growing quickly, you got to be able to delegate, and there's got to be some type of structure and organization. So we actually do rely a lot on you um, and our other partners to be able to learn of okay. You know, the the plane has taken off now. How do we make sure that we bring in, you know, the stability of, you know, leadership and, and the teams and making sure we're still running fast, yet having some more structure around it? And, and I guess that's uh, that's a good problem to have. But that's certainly where we've looked to, to you for that, you know, leadership guidance. From the technology side, is there anything in particular, Walter, that you guys are kind of looking at and in, in, on the life insurance side to say, or, you know, and the Allianz Life side to say, okay, yeah, here's what we think is the next big thing. Um, you know, I'd love to kind of get your perspective from a technology, you know, side of, of things. Yeah, I would say um, in the past, our primary focus was on automation, efficiencies, the enhanced productivity that technology would bring. And I don't want to say there isn't a long way to go on that front, but perhaps that's not as front and center or won't be as front and center going forward as we tick through the obvious things that we can do. Insurance industry has the advantage, I guess it's an advantage of being a little behind some other uh, financial services um, aspects of the industry. So we can simply look at what they've done, say on the banking or asset management side and and see the remaining gap we have to close. But more recently, we've started to think about the power of technology to drive growth. Um, And some of that might be simplicity and automation related, but I think there's other factors. One clearly is analytics. Um, and we're, I think, just scratching the surface, yet scratching it in a way I can see there's still a big opportunity that hasn't yet been mined. So it's not as if that space has been filled. Uh, even simple things, you know, how do we direct our salespeople to who they should be talking to? Uh, mm-hmm. What should we expect in the future from relationships and can we target uh, more effectively? So I think that's one big area we're going to devote more resources to. The other maybe is more specific to what's happened during the pandemic. Uh, again, we had focused so much on administrative ease, and that helped. Um, so it was easier to, you know, obviously electronic applications, electronic medical records, those are all beneficial. But ultimately, we have to help our advisors identify uh, potential new clients, um, handle marketing activities, um, electronically, and there the tools are much more rudimentary. So I think there's a whole you know, area that will be mined as we go forward, really to help with the growth and marketing side uh, of our advisors' work. Well, it's uh, it's kind of like the Amazon approach at the end of the day, right, is that you know the world in, in every sense of the word is becoming so tailored 
right? So everything that we have, even in our personal lives, whether it's Twitter and our in our in our content feeds on Twitter, whether it's Uber, whether it's Amazon, whether it's Netflix, you name it, everything is tailored to Walter and Jason. You know, your Netflix probably looks different than my Netflix. Your Amazon looks different than my Amazon. Uh, although we do share similar interests, so perhaps they don't look too far between, but I bet they are different, right? And and certainly they're not exactly the same. And same thing with Twitter. And so, and I think that that's what the way that we always think about things, at least at Halo, is like, we have such customization in our personal lives. We have such a big focus and um, reliance on content, right? And idea generation in our personal lives. Why don't we have it in our professional lives, right? You know, advisors are humans too, right? They, they, look, they look at Twitter, they use Amazon, they use Netflix, um, you know, as our first uh, podcast was with Jeb Bush. And, you know, we're, Jeb was talking about how him and his wife at night, that's, that's, that's their typical evening, right? Is watching different series on Netflix. Um, and so we all do it, right? And, and, and so that's where I think that the world of AI is becoming so important. It's not just about serving up different ideas, right? It's about understanding customer behavior, not because you want to get an advantage, it's because you want to add value to that customer. You know, it's like how, you know, who would have ever thought even 15 years ago that you would buy and sell a car online without even looking at the car, right? And then Carvana comes on and it's completely changed the world of buying and selling cars. Um, you know, they invented the car vending machine. And I do think that that is the way that the world is going, which is it's no longer boots and suits that are going, you know, door to door and trying to sell your products. You know, I think that technology and AI ultimately turn insurance products or structured notes or, you know, pick your investment from being sold into being bought. And that's a benefit, I think, to the entire industry, because then you're not product pushers, you're providing a solution that a customer actually needs and tailored to that specific customer's needs instead of, here's my menu of products, pick which, you know, pamphlet that you want to buy. Yeah. Right. And, and I think that that's the way the insurance and the annuity industry is going to certainly the way the structure note world. I mean, shoot, when we started Halo, most of our business was off the rack calendar offerings, right. That banks would put out every single month and you subscribe to which one, and you'd have a certain, you know, menu of items last year, 92% of our business was customized offerings, not off the rack, 92%. That's in three and a half years. And that's how fast this world is changing. And so when you look at that too, as I, you know, I'd love to kind of get your perspective of, is that where you see the industry going of kind of from being sold into being bought? And what, what is the implication for an alliance with that in regards to your distribution model and just how you kind of think about things? Yeah, no, no question. I think that's been true of good advisors um, for quite a while that they're not product pushers. They are trying to craft custom solutions for their clients. Two things I'd say, um, you know, interestingly, when some of the examples you cited, like an Amazon or a Netflix, you know, does this sort of customization, it's still really crude. I mean, you try to find something on Amazon, it still can be a painful experience, which shows how hard this is to do effectively. Uh, and I think financial services has a long way to go to even catch up with that relatively crude level. So that's an exciting idea that you know, we, we can take customization to a much higher level. Second thing I'd say is we are seeing a proliferation of tools that advisors will use as part of their marketing and I'll call it selling process. Um, so much, and they're embedded so much in the practice, it really is 
the sales process now, the tool has become so critical. Um, and while tools have always existed, we're seeing that connection at a level we haven't seen before, almost such it'll exist as its own distribution channel that, you know, this is the tool I'm going to design my practice around. As a manufacturer product, you know, that, of course, makes it really important. We're integrated effectively with those tools. We're picking the right solutions and we're helping advisors um, learn how to use them. We're playing our part. So that's exciting, too. In addition to the technology itself, the education training part of that gives us another way that we could potentially add value. Yeah, and it's it's at the end of the day, it's it's all about the ecosystem. You need to provide and be on the right platforms where the meet the advisor where they are at, right? First and foremost, and provide the education. And the analytics isn't even just about okay, what does that advisor? What's the advisor most likely to you know to buy? I think you know Allianz and Halo take a big focus on the analytics of the product analytics. So. You know, are these products good for that particular client, like the Barcima family, based on my objectives and my goals within my portfolio? Because Walter and, and Jason are probably different in our investment objectives as well. And so you need to have those tools and those analytics to make sure that the advisor, as a fiduciary, is making informed investment decisions. I know that that's been a huge focus for Allianz, um, at least of what I've seen, you know, from our partnership. But switching gears a little bit from the technology side, you know, clearly, you know, being a life insurance company and, and the number of annuities that, that, that you ultimately manufacture and produce, you know, where is the world of investing really going from, from your perspective? And allow me to kind of frame it in, in a way of, um, you know, that I think that would be probably more relevant. But, you know, Dr. Neil Soss, who is uh, the vice chairman of uh, investment strategy and research of Credit Suisse and our longtime global chief economist, talked a lot about the elimination of defined benefit plans. Right. And, and everything, again, just as we're talking about, is becoming more customized uh, based on their own retirement situation. You know, where do you see from a from a product perspective and just an investment perspective, the industry going? You know, do people want more defined outcomes? Are they going to be more, you know, uh, centered around getting that protection in the portfolio? I know you're biased by saying probably yes, but in your unbiased view, where where is the market going from an investment perspective? So in this question here, I run the risk of exposing that intellect gap um, I was describing <laughs> since uh, referred to Neil no, Sauce. No. Um, yeah, clearly the uh, move away from defined benefit plans has been really significant. And if you you know read what Ted Benna, sort of the father of the 401k plan, has said, they never envisioned that these defined contribution plans would become as dominant uh, as they have, which puts a huge burden on the participants to make the right decisions. And while there are tools um, that plans are adding to help with that, you know, you can look at any range of statistics that people typically are not making good decisions. You know, they're either out of the market when they should be in the market or they're whipsawing back and forth trying to time the market. Um, so I do think that's a, that is an issue that we've entrusted people with manage their own outcomes and they may not have the, the education or the advice uh, they need to do it. We do believe as more people move into retirement, um, even at the individual participant level, the importance of some source of regular income will become more obvious. Um, you know, and as alternative sources like defined benefit plans or the security of sources like Social Security come under pressure, you know, where is that um, regular stream of income going to come from? 
So that's been a big part of how we're positioning the annuity. It's not a solution to everyone's um, single retirement needs. It's a component mm-hmm. of a balanced portfolio where you've got that regular income to allow you potentially to take more risk with other aspects of the portfolio, cover certain critical expenses. We think that's really important. And I think that's become clear to advisors generally, maybe in the accumulation years, we're just focused on asset allocation, maximizing returns. Now they realize, hey, client's going to get into a decumulation mode. I've got to add value advising them most tax efficient ways to do that and how to get that regular source of income. So we're pretty bullish on the um, both the future of products that provide income as well as the future of products that recognize the risk people have in their portfolios because Another issue beyond people making wrong choices is they really don't have any sense for the risk that's embedded in what they have or their appetite to accept that risk. Um, And, you know, good advisors, that's one of the first things they deal with is what is your appetite taking people through some scenarios and do you understand how much risk you currently have? I think that's a pretty critical step. And so, you know, and and I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more on that. Is that I don't think people really understand the true risk of their portfolio. And and you're dealing in a very interesting market environment where you know the risk gap between stocks and bonds is the widest that I've seen in decades. Right? Of obviously, given where equity valuations are at, interest rates are from a bond perspective. You know where. I call the protective investing product, whether it's the buffered ETF, um, whether it's the structured note or whether it's the annuity, in my humble opinion, they all do the same thing, right? I mean, the objective is to provide a level of downside investment protection against market declines and stability within the portfolio while not uh, having to sacrifice returns or the upside. In one form or another, you can get you know the upside participation or you can get a fixed return and in theory, I think that these are one of the most elegant products and suite of products that I've ever seen. And, and almost more critical now, given not only where the risk gap is, but just the demographics around the world. I mean, you and I are getting older, right? And we need more certainty. You know, I hate to admit it, right? <laughs> but we are. And we need more certainty now more than ever in regards to you know, our portfolios and the outcomes and and the returns that we deliver, even for our own sake and for future generations' sake. And that's why I think these tools are so powerful, yet they have and can have not the best of optics, right? You know, you mentioned structured note in America, and, and uh, yeah, a lot of people look at you uh, with, with some evil eyes, right? And same thing with annuities. They don't always have the best, uh, you know, they always don't have the best optics. And and, and candidly, rightfully so. There's always bad apples in every asset class, right? Whether it's equities, whether it's bonds, whether it's annuities, whether it's structured notes, whether it's hedge funds. There's bad apples out there, unfortunately. Now, how do you really get above that, you know, of being able to portray and and clarify the beauty of these products, right? And and, and portfolios and the elegance of these products and overcoming some of the, you know, the bad optics and the challenges with the products to you know, to people and maybe as a follow-on question to that, not only the optics, but relating them to the younger generations and the importance as the savings vehicle as they get older. I'd love to hear your perspective. So I think in terms of the optics, a couple of things we talked about already will help. I think the integration into these technology tools will help because people need to see, you know, what impact would this have on my total portfolio? So it's hard to convey with a marketing brochure 
but when you actually um, can see it operating, yeah. so these platforms uh, are so it needs critical. It to be dynamic within aspect. someone's portfolio, you know? Exactly. Run different scenarios. And if you can couple that with some education, I think that, that definitely helps. And we're seeing that from the platforms. Um, I think another issue is self-created that, you know, we allowed products in some cases to get overly complex and the incremental consumer value from that complexity um, it was not offsetting. So we have to be realistic when complexity adds value, then I think we just need to present it in a simple way. But when that complexity is just simply not adding any value, I think we have to question that. We've seen that in our annuity world with the proliferation of indice choices. In some cases, I mean, A, you, you need to be a genius to figure out how it works. Yeah. But when you look at, did that really add to the value of the product? Not so much. So I think we, we have, to, have to address that. I think in other cases where the industry has been under some pressure, uh, say from the regulatory side, there maybe isn't a full understanding of this versus what. I mean, if you're trying to take some risk out of portfolio, you know, and you're comparing it to the optimal possible choice you could have made with perfect foresight, um, yeah. you know, that's a tough standard. But if you're talking about it in real life where people are sitting in cash um, as a way of taking some of that risk out versus any one of these uh, products, I think it's a much more fair comparison. So I think that's important, too. And the last thing I'll say, which is sort of frames the heart partnership, having an array of solutions uh, is important, depending on people's interest and income, their need for liquidity. You know, there, there's various factors, I think, that we have to take into account. And we have to be realistic with our annuity portfolio to your point about younger consumers. You know, our average consumer was skewing fairly old um, and it was a once you know, decision they made right as they're entering retirement or shortly in retirement. We weren't really doing much um, at the younger end of the spectrum. And I think some of these other solutions uh, potentially uh, help us with that. So one of the pushes we have as a company as we think about future sources of growth is to think about younger consumers and finding product solutions that are better fit uh, than some of our classic uh, annuity solutions. Well, and, and I think that that's spot on, right? And, and, you know, we've talked about individually where, you know, I believe that part of the problem with, um, you know, annuities and structured notes is, again, that optics, but we have to look at it from a different lens, right? Where you and I, I wish we did, but you and I wait, don't wake up in the morning and say, shit, I really need an annuity. Right. Or I really need a structured note. I wish the world did, but it's just not reality. Right. We wake up in the morning and we watch CNBC and Bloomberg and, and other outlets. And, and we have a specific thesis that we want to put on, or there's a specific investment objective that we want to achieve within our portfolios. Right. And then we think about what is the most appropriate vehicle for me to implement that. Right. Whether it's a mutual fund, whether it's an ETF, whether it's a nudy, whether it's a structured note. And that's where we've, I think, really change the optics and want to continue to change the optics on these products. You know, 50% of our customers have never bought a structured note before, which I think is a good testament to what technology in general can do and analytics can do. But it's, you have to start with the thesis, right? And then you have to show the different wrappers is what's the most suitable wrapper for Walter, right? And based off the different liquidity trade-offs and investment size trade-offs and customization trade-offs, whether it's the buffered ETF, which Allianz and Halo launched in the fall of this past year, and we're seeing great demand for that, whether it's the structured note or whether it's the annuity, all provide 
somewhat similar, you know, protections and, um, you know, and, and outcomes within the portfolio, there's just different trade-offs. And, and that's where I think it goes back to Allianz's big focus, you know, not trying to promote your own brand, but Allianz's big focus of providing solutions, right? Is it's not about selling product. It's about allowing people to buy their most appropriate product. And, uh, and I think that if we can reframe that from, annuities versus notes versus ETS versus mutual funds and think about more from the protective investing wrapper, right? And then you solve for the outcome and then describe or define the most appropriate wrapper. That makes a lot more sense and sheds a lot more transparency on, on the industry in whole. Um, and so I, I know that we kind of see eye to eye, you know, in, in regards to that. And I think it's also a testament to the innovation that you guys have, not from just a technology, from a product perspective. I mean, would you ever thought a couple of years ago that you would be launching a buffered ETF? <laughs> uh, probably not, right? As an insurance company launching exchange-traded products. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think we have to continue to push ourselves in that direction. And of course, one of the, the unifying factors here is the advisor that, you know, most consumers don't wake up thinking about any financial product. They rely <laughs> on their advisors to guide them. So making sure these products... Um, you know, meet the needs of advisors, how they want to approach clients, how they explain uh, outcomes uh, is really important. And I'm very optimistic on the future of advice um, in America because most people are under-advised um, and the yes. advisors have their own baggage, I think, to overcome. But what I see in advisors and, you know, I'll make it age-related, particularly younger advisors, um, is just focus on, you know, holistic planning, using these tools, using the array of products that you mentioned, you know, that's exciting. I think the quality of the device is going to improve and that ultimately will help younger consumers as they're in their accumulation years. Yeah, I'd love to just to kind of spend the last, uh, you know, five or 10 minutes with you, Walter, on the personal side, right? And so, you know, Allianz is, uh, is someone who's got, you know, a mandate to make a profound impact in the local community, whether it's sports, uh, you sponsor my my favorite football club in the world, uh, Bayern Munich, uh, and uh, four championships last year, for the record, um, which was uh, which was a record for football, uh, proper football, in my uh, in my humble opinion. But um, you know, you do that within Minnesota, obviously, and and do that with sports franchises all around the world with the community service Allianz gives. What what does that mean to you personally? I mean, does that is that why you wanted to join Allianz, and why do you guys have such a big focus on the impact that you create in the community? Yeah, interesting on the the uh, soccer side. You know, I don't think we fully understand in the U.S. the fervor you see uh, in <laughs> Europe. So when when Bayern is playing for a championship, I mean, all of Munich is is engaged. It's pretty. Incredible. My calendar was literally blocked during the Champions League. There was no meetings allowed when Bayern was playing, and it's you know two o'clock in the afternoon. The only time you'll see my calendar blocked is when Bayern's on for in Champions League. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I think um, you, we're seeing this trend generally. I think um, going back to my point about you know, working or a company where if you do your job well, you'll have an important impact in the lives of your customers. I think people are looking for that more and more. It's not enough, um, you know, simply to have a job that's appealing from a compensation and even the interesting aspect of work side of things. I think this broader impact is more important. I definitely sense that as we bring new employees into the company, the questions they ask about you know, what, what do we think about uh, certain issues? I think that's really relevant. 
It also makes me optimistic, frankly, about bigger companies because there is a level of bandwidth and scale you need um, both to divert the time to those issues as well as to make a, a meaningful impact. And that's really where being part of this global behemoth helps because, you know, Allianz, you know, now they're focused on ESG issues really can make a significant impact on the climate change question. Whereas, you know, that may not be possible in a smaller company, even if they were devoted to the issues. I think that's important. I will say in the U.S., from the standpoint of engaging in the community and partnering with nonprofits, we're probably further along the curve than what I've seen in Europe. Um, you know, when we would have um, either employees come here for a while or visitors, they're always surprised about the amount of volunteer activity we were coordinating uh, through the office. Those are more personal decisions, it seems, in Europe. So I think there's some learning. They're very interested in, you know, how does that work? What value do the employees see in that? How does the community receive it? So I think that's that's important. But we've certainly seen example after example, maybe again accelerated by the events of last summer, um, where companies are expected to take a position, and even if it's controversial, live with some of the, the controversy that creates, um, and yet still appeal to a broad swath of customers and appeal to the distributors and employees. So it's become a little trickier to, to pick the issues um, to focus on. Um, and I guess on that front, I really take the cues from our employees first and foremost. Um, you know, that which is important to them ultimately engages them. It's what delivers value to customers. So we have to be, you know, ultimately very sensitive uh, to that. And I try not to introduce too much of my own personal bias into this. Um, <laughs> you know, I have my own views, my own political leanings, but, you know, channeling the outlook of our employees is pretty important. What 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 responsibility is it for big companies like an Allianz or like a BlackRock? And you see everything Larry Fink's doing in, in the ESG side. What obligation does a company like yours have to promote ESG and corporate responsibility? To your point, you know, I'm I'm still an early stage company. I don't have the war chest, you know, that Allianz has, nor the influence that Allianz has. Do you see that as a responsibility? you know, from the company and as the leader of your company, do you see that as a personal, personal responsibility for you to ensure that you give back and, and why? Yeah, I think the easy part of that is when it's directly related to the business of your company. And certainly if you're an investment manager, where you choose uh, to invest, um, it yeah. does have ESG implications. Um, so I think that makes sense. I think you can get too far afield and be opining on things that are simply personal opinions don't really relate to your company. I try to avoid that because there's many, many sources for that type of, uh, that type of input. <laughs> um, you know, and as I said, I try to be responsive to the feelings of our employees and, you know, their um, interests may change over time. We need to be sensitive to that. So again, going back to last summer, it was pretty clear there was a lot of interest and in what are we going to do about, you know, race-based disparities in the Twin Cities. So we yeah. started to Rethink some of our community activity uh, with that in mind. So I think that's that's important. And the last thing I'll say, going back to what I said at the very beginning about how we're approaching the diversity and inclusion question, you know, never overlook what you can, can you can control and manage within your own walls. Um, you know, I think if you don't do that, you're not going to have any credibility. You know, talking from a broader platform. 
And I'm really optimistic about the fact that so much divisiveness um, where you can barely go anywhere without getting into an argument within a company where you have a common purpose and people observe certain rules of behavior and how they interact. That's one of the few places you can have these conversations, not have it end in disaster. So that gives the company a unique role that I think we have to preserve and, and try to foster. It's a great place for people to come together. My last question for you, Walter, uh, would be from a personal side, what do you do for fun? So what is the CEO and president of one of the uh, world's largest uh, insurance companies in America and, and you know, obviously the North American side? Uh, what, do you, what do you do for fun? So I have two children that are now grown. So what occupied us, and it's been uh, fun to watch our employees, depending on where they are on, on that continuum, the different experiences they've had you know, during the constraints. Um, so children are out of the house. Fortunately, my daughter lives uh, nearby. So we spend a lot of time with my daughter, which is, which is great. It's been wonderful to see them both grow into responsible uh, adults. Um, I am a runner. So I do that when I'm not injured, which unfortunately is happening more often. Um, I did, um, I fought it for a while because it seemed like such a cliche. We got a Peloton. Um, nice. So I've been doing that. Uh, I'm not sure I like it. I, I kind of like the solitude of running, having somebody shrieking at you um, isn't quite the same. I use Peloton too, but I have my earbuds in with uh, with either a podcast or, or the call map uh, because I'm the same way. I, I turn the the list off or the, you know, the leaderboard off and I turn the sound off. Uh, but I'm the same, I'm the same way. I didn't know you were a Peloton guy. I have to look you up. Now what bugs me about it too, is it's not easy. Um, so no. in the meantime, while you're getting yelled at, these people are so incredibly fit. They can talk yes. nonstop while they're, they're exercising. Um, I like to read and um, then a couple of activities that have been constrained, which have were, were great options in the Twin Cities. Um, you know, great restaurant um, culture, many options, um, increasingly diverse, in fact, and then live music, um, many, many venues. So as soon as we're out of this uh, period, I can't wait to get back to those things. Yeah, I think uh, I think for all of us, right, is you know, getting back to a concert, uh, we both share love for music and just getting back to life. Uh, We'll be we'll be good, and the good news is that it's uh, it'll be here before we know it. I am confident in regards to that. Uh, civilization will live on, and normalcy uh, will uh, will come back. I, I I hope at least for all of our sakes. But you know, Walter, you've given us so much of your time today. I am so grateful and, and so blessed and so honored. You know, again, to call you a friend and to call you a partner, and just you know, thank you for sharing your perspectives with our audience and our community as. And not many people get to sit in front of the CEO and president of, of Allianz Life. And so just thank you again for allocating you know, so much time to us today. I really appreciate the opportunity, Jason. I'm looking forward to our partnership going forward. I think uh, we're going to do some great things together. Mm-hmm.